Welcome to Good Business, a weekly podcast to help you create a business that is good for people, planet, and the profit line. I'm Chris Edwards. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I created my first business, Honeycombers, when I was at the tender age of 28. And that business is a lifestyle guide to Singapore, Hong Kong, and Bali, and now employs over 30 people across four countries. Last year, I founded a new business called Launchpad, which is a community movement designed to support entrepreneurs who aspire to create conscious companies. Launchpad has members across six countries and runs around about 30 events every month. We run masterclasses, coaching and connection calls, as well as peer group sessions. On this podcast, we're going to explore the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial ride and understand how successful and clever innovators and business leaders bring people, planet and profit line together to build better businesses. What does it really take to create a heart-led business? Join me and together we're going to find out. Before I get into it, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm recording this podcast on, Bundjalung Country. I pay my respects to the elders past and present, and I extend my respects to all traditional cultures. Okay, let's get into it. So I'm just fresh back from Singapore where Launchpad held its very first ever Business for Good Pitch Festival. And my next guest was the winner. Sarah Garner is the founder and CEO of Retycle. Now, you might not have heard of Retycle because it is a new business, but you're going to love it. Retycle is a fashion business that helps you recycle and resell your kids' clothing. Children use a huge amount of clothes because they grow so quickly. And Sarah saw this as a problem that needed fixing because of the environmental impact of buying and discarding clothing for kids. Retycle started in Hong Kong, and I've known Sarah for quite some time and been a bit of a, I suppose, a cheer squad for this business because I love the concept so much. And she really blew the room away last week when she described how the concept works and really even right down to how she's using technology to make it really easy for mums to resell their kids' clothing and keep this fashion in a circular economy so it's not wasted and creating waste. This chat today is great. We touch on lots of things like how do you encourage a mindset about reusing things in a culture where secondhand items are not valued, like in Hong Kong, which is where she started. How do you move into new markets? And also, how do you fundraise as a woman who's got a business and a concept that really is something that women need or mums need and the conscious and unconscious bias that you come up against when you're fundraising for such a business? You're going to love this chat today. Let's jump into it. I've known Sarah for quite a few years, um, I think maybe five years because of our platform, Honeycombers and Honey Kids. And Sarah's been a member of Launchpad and I'm really thrilled to have Sarah with me today. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So I know a little bit about your story, but maybe you can just share with our audience a little bit about how Retycle started. I started my career in luxury fashion. So I started out in New York and then in Toronto, where I'm from, 
and then moved to Hong Kong in 2007 and, uh, and worked in, in a corporate roles. And, uh, and so I had worked with inventory management, merchandising, buying a whole array of fields within fashion. And then I became a mom. And I think with many entrepreneurial stories, it, it starts with a personal pain point. And mine was that, yeah, I was sitting with all of these outgrown clothes that in many cases I hadn't even pulled the tags off of, or he had worn them once. And he just went through the sizes much more quickly than, than I guess I had even imagined uh, kids would, would grow. And so I wanted to figure out how do I recirculate? How do I match these uh, outgrowns with somebody that, that would need and want them? And how do I make sure that they don't go to waste? And I think with many entrepreneurial stories too, it's like a confluence of things that happen all of the same at the same time. And then you go, I want to solve this. And, uh, and mine was that epiphany in my own closet. But then also I had received a lot of hand-me-downs from a friend before Henry was born and some of them were useful and some of them weren't. And uh, I, I found the ones that weren't useful were things like the season was off of when he was born or they were not to my taste. Uh, and, and what ended up happening is that I evaluated the secondhand value of those items. And by item, I don't know why I was, uh, that was my impulse, but I gave my friend who had given me the, the items a gift card for the amount that I thought they were worth as secondhand. And from there, and she was thrilled because she had three kids to continue clothing. And I was, I was very happy to receive them. And, uh, and from there, I just felt that there was something in terms of that exchange that wasn't happening in the existing market where, where there was value to be exchanged. There was a lot of waste being created and and thrown away in many cases that could be, could be reused. And I just wanted to solve for it. And I wanted to solve it in a very small way to, to begin with. And then, um, was just really fueled by passion to create something that was viable and scalable to to address the problem on a on a larger scale. So uh, so we started as a consignment platform, which is sellers just uh, clear out their closets, and then we do all of the work on their behalf, and uh, and they get paid when their items sell. And on the buyer side, we try to create it. Um, I'm from the luxury background, so I wanted to create an experience that felt uh, really as good as shopping new and came with a lot of the touch points that you would find in a in a luxury or very high end uh, experience in terms of customer service and other other aspects of the business. So um, it's been a journey, and uh, we did open our doors in 2016 or open our website doors in 2016, and that was from my bedroom seven months pregnant. So uh, it's been yeah, it has been. We're in year six now, and uh, or I suppose we're at the beginning of year seven. So it's been a journey from the beginning. Yeah. But uh, very happy that we've, we've been alongside each other for all these years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it has been great to follow your journey and, you know, we've touched base across the pond a few times. You're based in Hong Kong and I was based in Singapore at the time. And I've always found your journey incredibly interesting and inspiring. And that's why you're here today, mainly because I think you were very, very early in your concept. And I also think to bring in a, I suppose, a luxury experience into a secondhand pre-loved market and educate the Asian market about pre-loved is a very ambitious goal. And I'd love to talk to that now. So has that been one of the big challenges? Yeah. And I think I was, I was semi-naive about it when, when I started because I had some indicators. I mean, there at the time I knew there was no secondhand that that market did not exist here and, uh, was 
more commonplace in Canada where I'm from, at least like charity shops or um, offline charity shops or secondhand shops. You could always think of somewhere in your neighborhood where you would, you would find a secondhand shop in Hong Kong. That was not so. There was only things like Milan station, which were plastic wrapped secondhand handbags, which had maybe been wrapped in scarves or just absolutely pristine condition. And that was all that existed really on the, on the market at the time. And what I found when I first arrived in Hong Kong was something quite different when you went to a store. So I worked at Lane Crawford when I first arrived and some customer, a Chinese customer would try on an item, decide to buy it, but then they would request a brand new one from the stock room and they would want and expect the the new item to come in a plastic wrap. And so that that was something very different culturally from Canada, where if you try something on in a store, you're very pleased to take that item home with you, irrespective of the fact that three other people or 10 other people had tried on that item. So I had these like small, I had been in the market at that point for at least eight years. So I, I had some indications of the apprehensions or disdain for things that weren't pristine and brand new. But I don't think I really knew the depth of the stigma around around secondhand until I really got started because I knew I was within the foreigner market. And so I knew within the foreigner market, there was an appetite for what we were doing. And then it wasn't until we got started that I really started to become both more aware, but more educated about some of the cultural stigmas and, and how to potentially overcome them. So we, so the, the cultural apprehension is around typically, well, there are many things. One, one is that the luck of the former wearer could be passed on to the new receiver and it could, could be bad luck. So that's, that's one uh, cultural apprehension that there's this, uh, luck that you don't want to have, you don't want to not know what the, what the luck is. So it would only, items would only pass down basically from brother, brother, or, or cousins for that reason. And so many, many things get, get thrown away, uh, in the, in the market. And then the other is that you're sort of perceived in terms of social stature that you can afford new. And so that's, that's another big cultural apprehension, I suppose, is just to that, that sense of pride of, of social stature. And so what we endeavored to do and continue to do is, and, and from the beginning really, is that we tried to change mindsets around, um, anything that would attribute shame to secondhand and switch that to a sense of pride. So that's been the emotion, emotional switch that we've been trying to drive at is that you should brag about the fact that you're shopping secondhand for these reasons and there shouldn't be any shame or stigma associated with it for these reasons. And so we've really tried to educate the market about the responsibility, uh, the impact, and some of the fashion stats i think that a lot of people don't think about in their day-to-day lives so we've we've tried to make for a more conscientious consumer and and community and then spread that by way of our existing community so we we really think of anyone who has participated with us as a mini advocate and they end up changing the minds of the next layer of consumers and we we worked with people in hong kong that were of affluence in, influence that didn't need to shop secondhand in terms of a price point, but were rather choosing it as a lifestyle and as an advocacy for the environment. And those people then can also change minds. And yeah, everyone has the power to change someone else's mind about about their consumption habits. So it's been little by 
little, but I, I really think it's through that advocacy of our community that we've been able to, um, to grow and, and spread secondhand in a way that just did not exist in, uh, in the market before. So yeah, very proud of what we've been able to achieve in a market that wasn't necessarily open or fertile to the, to the idea in the, in the early days. Mm, yeah, you should be very proud. And it's really wonderful to see that I suppose it's like a grassroots uh, ripple effect strategy and word of mouth, like that advocacy. It's a very hard strategy, but once you kind of can get it working, then it does snowball, I, I presume. And have you seen that? Have you seen it's been easier every year? Yeah, it's a, it is a network effect. I mean, it does, mums are particularly powerful in that if, you know, when you become a mum, you create your toolkit, like you create what, what makes your life easier, what, what really serves you as a mum. And we, we, we try to be of service to, to particularly mums, also dads, but uh, predominantly mums and create create value for them in terms of yeah, a habit formation and something that really serves them as something convenient and effective in their lives. And then that becomes something shareable for them. And I, I mean, I come from the, the luxury side. I think no matter which industry you've catered to a luxury customer, you understand the power of customer service and how much that can affect your experience, retention and advocacy. And so we also, we really use customer service um, and our whole experience with Retycle as our marketing megaphone, because we believe that if you, yeah, if you have that excellent touch point and, and service with us, then you will, you will spread the, the good word as well. So we really, we really think, yeah, serving, serving the customer well is, uh, is the best, um, best marketing strategy. Yeah. I think that's super smart. Now I presume I'd have a lot of people listening to this podcast who are in one market, possibly Singapore or Hong Kong, and would love to expand to a second market. What would you say to them? What's your experience been launching into Singapore? Yeah, we, we had Singapore on our radar. We probably would have opened a year earlier or a few, at least a few months earlier, but uh, the pandemic hit just as we were exploring expanding. And I always wanted to bring Retycle to many more markets because it's a global problem and, uh, and we feel that we have a solution that can serve many people across the world. And we want to be present in the markets that we want to serve because we, we want to localize the the platforms that we're not shipping across borders. We're not incurring carbon through logistics. So we want to localize in the markets that we expand to. So Singapore for us was yeah a big objective to to get over and uh, and introduce the model to a new market and we fundraised with that intent to to open Singapore and then the pandemic made made things more tricky but we decided to persevere and open in Singapore while not being able to get to Singapore <laughs> so we opened the market remotely and uh, hired a team remotely didn't meet the team for, I think, nine months after opening, you know, went to the office for the first time and was like, oh, this is where we are. <laughs> this is where we are many months after having, ha- after having opened and operated in the market. So I think all in all, because we have an incredible team, it was much easier than I anticipated. Uh, we, we planned well, thanks to the team, and hired a good team on the ground. And I think those are the two key ingredients, just planning, planning well and hiring well and making sure you're ready from a capital perspective because it, um, 
it doesn't necessarily double your cost load, but uh, it adds a lot, I would say, more in terms of the capital load as opposed to the mental load. I think if you hire well, um, you can actually benefit from gains from just having another team, another uh, another perspective. It's uh, It doesn't necessarily mean that you're spread more thin. I think it's just the, the preparation in terms of making sure that you're ready to launch in another market and have that... I would say extra pressure of running another another market. You would know better than me with many many more markets under your belt. But um, I am really happy that we did it. I'm happy that we're diversified across two markets for now, and uh, and looking at a third at the moment. And then uh, another thing was that we sought grant funding. So we when we looked to launch Singapore, we did apply for the Bud Fund grant, which is a Hong Kong based grant through the government. And we we did uh, succeed in getting the grant. So that is something definitely every startup should look at if expanding to new markets, that there often are specific grants that are there to support expansion. And uh, no, I'm very, very happy that we did it. And I think it's a big proof point for any entrepreneur that it sometimes is very easy depending on your business model. But if you need a physical presence, uh, it can be more challenging. But I think it's another, you, you keep every step of the journey, as you well know, you open new challenges, uh, new opportunities, but definitely more challenges. And I think it's a good proof point. Once, once you've opened one new market or one international market, you create a blueprint, you create a plan and you're able to then replicate it to, to other, other markets and everything becomes easier from there. Yeah. Great. And tell me, was it hard to get the funding? Was it hard to get the grant? Uh, yes, it's worth it if you have the capacity. So in our case, we had somebody on the team that was that was running the process, but it's arduous. Like it's they don't make it easy because they don't obviously want people to take advantage. But it is um, many hours of work, so you have to be you have to be resource um, ready to be able to go through the process. And then the other thing as with everything that you do, that's a challenge. Once you've gone through it once, it's easier to know how to do it the second time with time savings. So a lot of it is just the learnings of, of going through the process. So there's also agencies and, uh, and people that you can hire that would handhold through the process. So that's also an option is to have somebody external that helps with those grant applications because they are arduous, but it is a lot of money on the table. Yeah, great. Okay, that's really valuable. And we actually just had a funding conversation or masterclass yesterday at Launchpad. And it's exactly what Jenny from Fluid Fund said was don't leave money on the table. Exactly right. Like if you've got it, can access it. I'm really excited to see that you're thinking of a third market. Do you think it's going to be easier again to launch into a third market? So to be confirmed, but we just won a pitch competition that gives us an investor roadshow in the U.S. So we'd go on a two-week roadshow through the U.S. at the end of May. And the intent of that program is to support high potential companies to launch in the US. So that is still something that we're working towards, not something that's a definite at this point, but we're we're exploring and have been exploring Australia and then also um, also the US. We're looking at a few other smaller markets, but 
we have grand ambitions as with all startups. We'll see if we can make them materialize, but uh, it's a, it's a great opportunity ahead. And we do believe we have a solution that works well and, um, and could cater to any, but, uh, but particularly bigger markets. Wow. That's incredibly exciting. Yeah. Congratulations. So that was the pitch festival that you did in Luxembourg. Is that right? Yes, rather random opportunity, but <laughs> how did you end up in a pitch festival in Luxembourg? Serendipity. So, um, <laughs> with the entrepreneurial journey, I do think you need to take opportunities as they come, and also give opportunities as as you're able to. But um, this one was very random. We were in Switzerland for a family holiday and met someone through friends over dinner. And he told me about this pitch competition in Luxembourg. And because we happened to be on the continent, I was like, maybe I could do that. <laughs> so yeah, that's how it happened. It was over a dinner that somebody mentioned the competition and I sent some materials to see if we could get in at the last minute and we did. And then two weeks later I was in Luxembourg. <laughs> so yeah, very, very random. But again, I think that's part of the journey too, is just, you never know when the next thing is going to be around, around the corner. Yeah. And opportunities everywhere. You've just got to be open to it. So Oh, that's a fantastic story. I love that. This podcast is brought to you by Launchpad, a community movement for conscious entrepreneurs. If you're seeking a sounding board, advice, masterclasses, or maybe just looking for a network of people that are in your corner to support you, come to the launchpad.group website and check it out. We'd love to meet you. Now, uh, you recently launched a new program called Buy Now, Sell Later, and I understand it's part of an integrated loop of selling clothing. Can you talk us through that? Um, so, my, yeah, my background is on the brand side, uh, so working with the biggest brands in uh, in fashion. And once I started secondhand, it, I mean, what we were early, so we were secondhand was a whole new category, resale, all these, like all these words didn't really exist even when we started. And since we started, tried to think of, okay, well, there's lots of people out there who have never tried secondhand. So this is, this is something foreign or something that they, they don't have an appetite for currently. And then on the brand side, this is a very emergent opportunity. It's a new revenue stream. It's a very fast growing sector, basically the, the secondhand, uh, fashion space. And we've tried, I've tried to think of how you connect these, like, how do you connect the firsthand world and, and the secondhand world? And so what we've created is buy now, sell later for recycle. So it means that when you buy something from us, it goes into your virtual closet. And then when you're ready to sell it again, you basically just select the items from your virtual closet and then they pass to us again. And the beauty of that, and we're so excited, is that we know that many of our customers also sell with us and vice versa. So we have this, this virtuous cycle. But in the past, before we built this, when something came back to us that had been bought from us, we didn't know. Like We didn't know it came from us. We didn't know it was making a second journey through secondhand. And so we were treating it as though it was a brand new listing, like we had never seen it before. And so now with this virtual closet, we have this trail, basically, we're able to see in the data, okay, bon point, uh, on average, it recirculates with us five times. That's a very good brand. Like that's a very high quality brand if it can recirculate with us five times, because we have a data trail now where we can see that particular dress 
was rehomed five times. It also saves us on processing time because we're not relisting the same thing that we've already had. And yeah, it just creates creates more of a virtuous loop and uh, a more efficient loop and then a better experience for the customer and seller that they have this like awesome digital closet of everything that they own. And it's very simple. Like if your child is four and you want to sort your closet for a two and three year old, you just sort based on two and three, and then you indicate all the things that are outgrown and, and send them on to us. So that's the first step, which we're really excited about and has been live for a couple of months and is being really well used by our community. And then the second part is this integration with brands. So we're, we're looking at integrating this whole platform with brands so that when you're shopping, firsthand, you're also conscious of the fact that you're saving that purchase to sell later. So we're putting secondhand on the minds of firsthand consumers that they have a conscience around what they're going to do with it after it's outgrown. So um, that's always been my goal is just how do you link the whole retail environment together so that there's a consciousness and and a circularity around that. And then beyond that, we're still only addressing things that are fit for resale. We do donate items that don't meet our quality assurances that are still fit for use, but just not fit for resale. But we want to also address things that are not fit for use. So not fit for donation, not fit for resale. And we want to complete the loop and are interested in garment to garment recycling and that full full loop and full circularity. So that's later down the road. But the innovation today that we're creating is really around this digital IDs and just creating creating more of a virtuous loop that people feel that they can't pass up. Like it's too it's too easy. It's easier than anything else and uh, and that they will participate. What a fantastic addition to what you're doing in terms of what a great innovation. I just think of it as a parent just to even have a reference of all the items that I can easily, you know, see because like that's the other thing, just keeping track of it all. But that's really, really fantastic. And how did you come up with the idea? How did that, was that like a moment in the shower? You just kind of went, you know what, we can take this one more level up. Yeah, I think everything's been iterative. Like I don't think there's ever like moments where we everything or one one idea comes at a lightning bolt. I think we we stay really close to the customer. So we listen all the time to to what our customer is is sharing with us. Actually, well, I would say like the genesis in the beginning was a pain point. Like customers or sellers rather were telling us that I bought this item at Retycle. My child wore it twice and then I sent it back to Retycle and you didn't accept it for resale. And I believe as the seller that it was in the same condition that when I bought it. And fair, like that's a fair pain point because when we assess a product, there's a certain level of subjectivity because it depends on the person that's um, assessing. And likely in all of those cases, it did depreciate in terms of the... um, the condition, but because we couldn't see that that product was bought with us, now when we can see that it's been bought with us, it has a much higher chance of acceptance because we're just able to say to ourselves, okay, we we accepted this item based on the previous condition. So like how much more worn is it versus the last spin around? And so we heard that a few times that um, someone had bought from us and then tried to resell. And we want to create that. We want to encourage people to keep selling. And I thought, well, that's counter to what we're trying to achieve. There's a lot that's being done with blockchain, with QR codes, with RFID that 
eventually when you buy something, everything is going to carry a unique identifier and it will have traceability in terms of the supply chain, but then it's also going to be scannable for something like a resale platform that will have all of the information about the item to then relist. That's um, coming, but it's probably going to be a while, especially to have universal adoption. So in the meantime, we're just building something that creates that loop without having to rely upon manufacturing or any type of uh, technology that's outside of Vertical. So um, I would say that's that's typically the genesis of our innovation is like there's a pain point and how can we try to resolve it with some sort of technology or automation that would make that an easier and more frictionless experience. And how wonderful that that's coming from being close to the customer. That is the best way to learn what your customer wants. Yeah, the negative or critical comments are the ones that we try to source the most. Like that's, you don't want to hear your, I mean, it's great to hear you're great or that people like the concept, but actually there's always something that's not not working well. And uh, and those are the things that you want to tease out and try to solve, yeah. Yeah, so the, the negative feedback's way more valuable than the positive feedback, yeah. That's very true. So just switching tracks a little bit, I know you really dislike the term mumpreneur. I can't even pronounce it. I don't think I like it either, but often it's used, I presume, more for you than most because your business serves mums. And you, you recently wrote about this on LinkedIn, which I really enjoyed. And you quoted that female founders only receive, I think it's less than 2% of venture capital, but women-led tech startups generate 12% higher revenue than male-run companies. So that's an interesting stat, isn't it? What's your view on that? Why do you think women are actually outperforming the men when it comes to, to tech startups with revenue? Oh gosh, it's quite yeah, quite a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, we um, I've been on the fundraising journey, and I think one of the biggest gaps or why this gap exists is that typically you're interfacing with men. And what I've come to realize over the journey is that investors are people. They are exactly the same as all of us. They have personal interests and they tend to invest in things that perk their personal interests. And they they can't, typically, they can't disassociate from that set of values or that set of, set of interests when they're looking at a business. And when the mass majority of investors are men, the mass majority of capital is going to be in businesses that resonate with them as a demographic. And so I think that's just like at the simplest level, why you see so much capital going to male-led businesses or male-centric businesses that address more of a male consumer or uh, male-female consumer as opposed to dominantly uh, female-led and female-focused companies. So the crux of it is just getting more women on the on the other side and into partner roles at uh, at VC firms and getting more more women to be the decision makers and then the other thing just in terms of and this was something that Nicole Denholder from Next Chapter um shared with me a long time ago is that in fundraising uh women tend to it's the same in conversations like this. Like women just tend to self-deprecate. Like they they have this sort of natural <laughs> way of either discrediting themselves or being hedging more. And uh, and men, particularly in like a business context, tend to like overstate and become overly optimistic, and everything is grand. Whereas women 
uh, have been statistically shown in like a pitching environment to talk about risk, talk about managing risk and, and sort of downside of business, whereas men only focus typically on on the upside and uh, and are very optimistic. And this tends to have a negative impact on, on access to capital because women aren't sharing this like grand, optimistic, overstated ambition or, or optimism. And so I think as a result, because women know that they don't have as much access to capital, they tend to run their businesses with more risk aversion. So with more, um, more downside protection basically. And, and I think ultimately that ends up that women tend to run either more sustainable or more top line centric businesses, as opposed to men as a generalization who think that there will always be more capital available to them. Uh, women don't progress with that same, confidence, I suppose, that uh, that capital is is never ending. Mm, yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, no, it, it definitely makes sense when you break it down. I mean, there's obviously bias there. And I keep reading that women are more likely not to apply for jobs that they're qualified for, whereas men are likely to apply for jobs that they're not qualified for. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, sorry, just one more point, just in case we're moving on, is that it is unconscious bias. Like, I don't think there are many investors that approach a conversation with two founders, a male and a female, and think I'm only going to invest in a man because he's a man. I really think it's an unconscious bias. And I think it goes back to that like interest level or camaraderie or familiarity. Like those are all very like natural biases that we that we have. Yeah, 100%. So tell me, what advice do you have for early stage entrepreneurs in terms of fundraising? Like what do you think has been the secret of your success to getting funding? I tried to, like everything, I just tried to learn a lot as much as I could. And maybe this also comes back to sort of wanting to be over-prepared as opposed to under-prepared for something that I was venturing into. And I really learned, like I, I tried to learn about the process through both accelerators, through yeah any type of materials that I could get my hands on that, uh, and also other founders, like uh, learning from other, other people's experiences. And there's a lot to learn. Fundraising is like running a second business. Like it's a, not an easy process. It's not intuitive. And so I would say learning, it's quite a prescriptive process. So there are ways to learn exactly what's expected and, and to produce those materials because they're fairly ubiquitous across investors and, uh, and then build a network before you need one. I mean, I think all entrepreneurs set out to build network, but maybe not an investor network. And, uh, and I would say that's a critical piece is is building network both with your like entrepreneurial community but then also with investor community or prospective investors to start building those relationships or people who have those relationships then when you're ready to fundraise you already have some some network and network is critical to fundraising it's cold outreaches and cold intros uh no there's no such thing as a cold intro but uh cold connections are very difficult to make and investors typically like to have familiarity with the founder or the the company via a connection or direct because as with anything they're placing a bet on someone and a company and they they feel much better about placing that bet if they have context so i would yeah i would say network is really critical and then don't take capital if you don't need it like grow your business without capital without fundraising if 
if you don't need to, because it's, um, it is, it's a separate track of, of running your, your business and, uh, and takes a lot of mind share and, and time. So, um, so yeah, those would be my, my two things. And that, yeah, just yeah, skill up the way you'd skill up for your business, but skill up on fundraising before you venture into it. Yeah, that's lovely advice or very valuable advice, I should say. Thank you. I could keep asking you questions all day. I really enjoyed following your journey and being a part of it. But I need to ask you a few rapid fire questions to round out today's interview. I'd love to know, do you have any business advice or business mantras that you you roll around in your head or you live by? I don't. <laughs> we, um, so what we do, no, I, I mean, one quote, like as a business, one quote that we really lean into is we, we don't inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. And I think that's quite a, well, it's a very mission aligned um, statement that, uh, that we love because it keeps us focused that it's, uh, we want to do better. We're doing better now today a little bit better but ultimately what we want to do is change the world of our children for tomorrow and with our small impact we hope that we're developing conscientious consumers of tomorrow and that this will be natural for them and they will very consciously think about their consumption both with clothing and and everything else in their in their lives and then every week we have a team meeting and I always put a quote at the top of the team meeting and it's typically something that is resonating with us at that particular moment. So I would say it's more that, yeah, I do, I do lean into quotes and, uh, and mantras, but, but it tends to evolve weekly in our case in terms of what we, what we look to. Yeah. Uh, I love that. I love that ritual of having a quote each week. That's great. Change is the only constant in business. What do you think entrepreneurs, what do we have our eyes wide shut to now? What do you think we all need to be a little more woke about? Yeah, I still think it's, I still think it's climate change. Like just that uh, it's today, like it's urgent. And uh, I was just reading something the other day that was talking about human extinction and that that's, that's a possibility if we're not, uh, if we're not taking care of our planet in a real possibility. So um, yeah, I think it's it's really more urgent than most day-to-day people are thinking about. So uh, every industry needs an overhaul. So no matter what sector you're working in, or if you're a parent, any anything that you're doing, you should, should try to um, evaluate how you can put planet at the center of it. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And that answers my next question, which was, if there was another industry that you could disrupt, what would it be? And you've said all of them, <laughs> basically, it, it, all, everything does need a, a new approach really rapidly. I'm going to answer the question for you. <laughs> I'll just chat here. I'll do the questions and the answers. Tell me, what's been one of your best business collaborations or partnerships that you've done? Uh, I think the one that I feel most proud of because it was very early on. I think it was back in 2018 or 2019, we partnered with Vestiaire Collective, which um, is a much bigger resale platform than us, an international platform. And uh, we partnered with them in Hong Kong near to when they launched and they did huge marketing campaigns around us as their kids were a partner. So that was, um, that was a good moment for us in terms of a business collaboration because they're a company that I admire and, uh, and it's always nice to collaborate with your sector mates and competitors as well. Mm, 
Yeah, it's a real leg up, isn't it, when someone bigger than you is happy to to work with you on a collaboration. Do you have a favourite business book or business podcast that you listen to? I love how I built this. I love hearing founder stories. So I listen to Business of Fashion and I have a whole roster of podcasts. I really love to listen to podcasts while while walking and any idle time. But I love how I built this. I really love hearing founder stories. I find them very inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Me too. Funny enough. <laughs> Last question at Honeycombers and Launchpad. We believe a rising tide floats all boats. You probably know a ton of entrepreneurs that are creating good businesses, but if you could recommend one to come on this show, who would it be? I was just on chat with her earlier, so she pops to mind, but um, Nassim from Happy Space, who I believe is also a Launchpad member. She, I feel like it's an interesting thing. Like it's, She's she's worked for us at Retegle. She helped us uh, with some organization around the office. I truly think it's life changing uh, what she does. Like I think um, having an organized space, but not just organized, but a system oriented space. Uh, it depends who you are and how you how you operate in space. But I think all of us um, really benefit from yeah a clear mind, and it's really quite incredible how much impact that can have. She just pops to mind. There are many amazing um, entrepreneurs and and particularly those that are that are environmentally focused. I, I have a soft spot for, but uh, I was on chat with her earlier and, and I really think she, she does a great service and uh, underrated in terms of the impact. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, Naseem, if you're listening to this, hit me up. Sarah, it's been such a delight chatting to you. I'm totally inspired by your story. Thank you for sharing it today. And yeah, I look forward to seeing what's next for Retycle. Thank you. It was great to chat. Thanks for having me. Three things I learned from this episode today. Firstly, don't fundraise unless you really need to. I think it's very interesting that fundraising is quite glorified. And I love how, frankly, Sarah kind of says, I wish I had a business that didn't require funding. It's a very interesting point of view. Two, stay really close to your customer. I love the way she used customer feedback as a way to inspire her and innovate. And then three, which is kind of related to two, is from problems and pain points can come really good ideas. And I loved the way she's innovated her business to use tech to help, I suppose, reward customers that are already using her platform, but also encouraging them to continue to come back and reuse her platform over and over. So I thought that was a really cool innovation that Retycle has come up with. I just loved this chat. Sarah, so inspiring. I love what she's doing. And I think she is just one of the entrepreneurs to watch in Asia. So thank you, Sarah. And uh, yeah, I hope you are all inspired by this chat as much as I was. Thank you for listening to Good Business. Okay, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Selfishly, I created this podcast for my own personal growth so I could go deep with entrepreneurs that truly inspire me. Of course, I also wanted a wider listenership to think about having impact and our wonderful community at Launchpad where we're all aspiring to create better businesses together. If you have enjoyed this episode, I'd love you to leave a review or perhaps share this podcast episode with a friend. That's how podcast episodes get discovered. 
And I would love more entrepreneurs to think more deeply about their business and about creating a heart-led business with a bigger impact than just profit. And I'm sure you would too. So go ahead and post something on LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook and spread the word. I will be forever grateful. Thanks again for listening. And I hope that you feel as inspired as I am to create your own good business.